You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everybody. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that features the works of authors we know and love through readings, discussions, and forums moving into the summer season and beyond. As always, we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatushaloni peoples, also known as the San Francisco Bay Area. We'd like to take this moment to acknowledge those who have come before us as stewards of the land and offer our respect. Tonight on City Lights Live, we celebrate the publication of a new short fiction collection, The Haunting of Haji Hotak and Other Stories, published by Viking Books. We are delighted to have with us its author, Jamil Jan Kachai, in conversation with Brandon Taylor in the, the stories that grace the pages of The Haunting of Haji Hotak, Mr. Kochai immerses the reader in Afghani diaspora, exploring issues surrounding heritage, the impact of war, the idea of what constitutes the concept of home, and much, much more. Jamil Jan Kachai is the masterful storyteller and wordsmith. Uh, he's the author of 99 Nights in Logar. You might remember it was a finalist for the Penn Hemingway Award for debut novel and the DSC Prize for South Asian Literature. His short stories and essays have appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Plowshares, and elsewhere. He is currently a Stegner Fellow at Stanford University. Joining him tonight will be Brandon Taylor. Brandon Taylor is the author of the national bestseller Filthy Animals and the book Real Life, which was shortlisted for the Booker Prize amongst other honors. He holds a graduate degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the University of Iowa, where he was an Iowa Arts Fellow at the Iowa Writers Workshop in Fiction. It's also really an amazing wordsmith in his own right, so really honored to have them both with us here tonight. <laughs> so please join us now in offering a warm welcome to Jamil Jankachai and Brandon Taylor. Thank you both for being with us tonight. Thank you for having me. It's a total honor. Yeah, it's a thrill. So stoked. Hi, Jamil. <laughs> hey, Brandon. It's so good to see you. I know. I Last time we saw each other was just... What two weeks ago now in yeah, New York? Yeah, I was and so happy to have caught you in New York again. Yes, at a lovely oh, pan oh, quotidian. Oh. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Okay. <laughs> yes, congratulations on this incredible book, this beautiful book. What the audience may not know is that I've been reading your stories for years now. Mm -hmm. We were classmates at oh. Iowa, and I think the first story I read when I went to Iowa was one was your story was I plucked it from the cubbies and read it that day and yeah. and yeah and and knew immediately that this was a writer I wanted to follow forever and <laughs> I you know I loved your novel but I kept thinking like but the stories but the stories but the stories and now here we are at last with um, your brilliant, polyphonic, incredibly strange stories that make me wonder all the time, like, how did he do this? <laughs> like, how did he arrive? And I think I twisted your arm before we got on and to give you, for you to give us a lovely reading from this book. Yeah, sure thing. Um, you know, uh, thank you so much for being here with me, Grant. Thank you to City Lights for hosting. Um, and, and thank you to everyone else for, for coming in um, and supporting the book. Really, really appreciate that. Such an honor to um, to be able to speak with Brandon in particular, as you mentioned, 
Um, you know, uh, we, we started at Iowa together. He was one of the first people who, you know, was, was supportive of my short stories very early on. So that's, you know, so you're very dear to my heart. And I, actually, I, I also had the opportunity to read his stories um, in workshop. And I was always, you know, tremendous, tremendous pleasure. You can see the talent bursting off the page. And so, you know, I've got his book, uh, the Animals, here as well. So, um, you know, <laughs> so, you know, pick that up if you haven't yet already. And, um, and yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll read. Um, so this is from a story I actually haven't had the chance to, to read out loud yet. So I'm going to go ahead and give it a shot here. This is from Enough. Um, Rangina does not know what to say to her group of a son will not stop shouting about pills or land or a stolen envelope of cash he meant to donate to the orphans of Logad because he's rambling now, absolutely rambling in front of her. Beloved daughters come all the way from Fremont to visit Rangina in this lonesome living room. Her son has decided to paint the most despicable shade of blue just sitting there, the poor girls watching their old mother get harangued by her only living son on the earth who is shouting, I found the torn envelope in your drawer of photos. And of course, there's no way for her to respond to all of his accusations without weeping like the child she had been once married off to a 60-year-old nomad at the precious age of 15 or 14, or who knows how old exactly. Dorangina did recall she was not too old to be playing with the dolls she fashioned out of clay from the edges of the rivers near where her youngest son would one day be murdered when her mother approached her in a coat of ash or dust or snowflakes and informed her that within the year she would be married and moved and pregnant again and again pregnant leading to so many little unmarked graves in the apple orchard beneath the falling blossoms as if Allah all praise be to him were saying look I know I know but then there's this until the baby stopped dying with the birth of her eldest son, the survivor, the rambler, still somehow rambling beneath the half-lit ceiling light he has failed to fix for the past three months, no matter how many times Rangina moans, this darkness will swallow me, his massive frame blocking the television and the fake fireplace and the cabinet containing Rangina's favorite photograph of Watak, his head shaved, his mustache barely sprouted, his soft lashes sparkling with frost, his lips slightly parted as if he was about to speak. But then his older brother, the survivor, speaks in his place, rambling about the pink pills from the Target CVS instead of the pharmacy at Rayleigh's, to is where Dr. Ahmad Z had sent all her medications before he died, before her eldest son moved the family out of their three-bedroom house in Broderick to their five-bedroom house in Bridgeway, despite the fact that she secretly preferred the smaller house and the bigger bedroom she shared with her eldest grandson, just six at the time, and so meek and so gentle, he would hold her hand every night to fall asleep. And then there was the ancient oak trees in the backyard and Faisal Market down the road, only a mile or so, a 15-minute walk for some dried mulberries or kishmish or fresh bread or a conversation with another Afghan, while in Bridgeway, she was surrounded for miles by nothing but houses, her white neighbors and their houses, her white neighbors and their dogs and their houses, their vicious dogs, always barking, always yapping and lunging, always on the brink of tearing away from their owners to rip open her insides like she had seen the communist dogs do in the pits of the orchards where her children had picked apples while searching for her eldest son, who, thank Allah, all praise be to him, 
was not eaten by those dogs or blown to pieces by the bombs or shot near the bank of a stream, her white neighbor's dogs preventing her from going outside and taking a walk and shedding the pounds piled up on her belly and back and thighs. And she supposes the valves of her heart. Otherwise, why wouldn't her son stop rambling that she had forgotten to take her blood pressure meds or had accidentally hidden them in the sheets of her bed only for her son's snoop of a wife to find them one day and claim that Anginal was hoarding them, the gift to her only living sibling on the earth, who, yes, perhaps, is an addict and a, swing, and a swindler and a wife beater, but who also has a very severe heart problem. And when you consider the state of Logar, that is, the ongoing years of bombings and shootings and random roadside executions, the Falkyan, the Soviet, the Mujahideen, the Taliban and the Americans, well, how could you blame her poor brother with desire to steal? Was it even stealing a small slice of the land that should rightfully belong as much to her as it does to her son, the rambler? <sighs> oh, Jamil. <laughs> oh, man, 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 man. I, listening to you read that, it just... It made me very nostalgic for our very, very long conversations in the Die House library. Um, and it made me think about all those times I would like pick up your stories and read them and just get chills from this incredibly singular idiom of yours. Um, and I just felt very transported by that. <laughs> Um, I would like, I guess, I mean, maybe that's a good place to begin this sort of singular idiom of yours. I feel like your voice, when I read you on the page, I'm, of course, struck by the originality of just the way that you put sentences together. But I'm also reminded of like some of my favorite writers like Borges and Marquez and Bolaño a little bit as well. Um, because, you know, like those writers who are incredibly masterful, I feel like what makes them scarily masterful is the kind of like nonchalant conversational way that they can bend language around. And I feel like that's something that was certainly on display in the passage that you read, the sort of easy, sort of almost like a great jazz musician riffing in language. And so I guess I have a bit of a two-parter to open, which is one, like, who are the writers who have kind of like fed that riffing quality of yours? And also, like, what is it about the riff that appeals to you as an as a writer? Because I feel like you are one of our great riffers. <laughs> Thank you so much. I mean, you've named a few of them already. You know, I think that's uh, this speaks to what a uh, you know uh, a great reader you are. But um, but Marquez, of course, is, was a huge influence. I think like his. Um, 100 Years of Solitude was a, was a total revelation for me, the things he was doing with, with the sentences. Um, well, you know, him and then, and then of course, the, the, the translator as well. Um, and then, and then Bor Borges as well. Um, you know, uh, Sandra Cisneros, a huge, huge influence. I remember um, uh, breaking uh, from reading her, from one of her story collections, one of the sentences, one of her opening sentences. I was trying to break it down grammatically and I like I literally I couldn't figure out where um, where 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 the verb was in the middle of the sentence, and and it was this paragraph long sentence. But then I realized there, that there wasn't a verb; it was just this list of modifiers and descriptors. But it worked as a, it functioned as a sentence. It worked as a sentence. It's a very beautiful sentence. So when I when I read a sentence like that, for me, it's like 
um, it's just, it's so inspirational. It's like, you know, it's, it's pushing the boundaries of what, of what a sentence can accomplish. And so um, very early on in my, in my writing career, but then, but then also, you know, in my love affair with, with books and with literature overall, I would say that like sentence crafting was something that deeply, deeply appealed to me even before, you know, I don't know, like characterization or plot or, or scene development or all these other elements of fiction writing I would come to love. It was really like just how the sentences sounded on the page to me that the poeticism, the, the lyricism, the music of the sentences themselves, like that's like, that's what really drew me in initially. Mm-hmm. There's this, I mean, you know, you refer to it as rifting. I think that's really great. And because there's certain, I don't know, there's certain, there's a certain vibrance to, to, uh, to, to like a really beautifully written sentences or, or a succession of sentences that, um, you know, that, that I try to capture in my own work as much as I can. Yeah. I mean, I feel like sometimes your sentences contain enough for a whole novel. You know, it's like what what feels so kind of miraculous about your sentences is that they sometimes contain a whole life or they contain like the moment a life shreds or breaks down. You know, they contain these like incredibly brutal pivots. Um, I mean, I'm always so terrified when I see a comma coming in your sentences because I'm like, what is on the other side? of that comma like i don't know if this lady's gonna make it you know um and it reminds me a lot of like you know what virginia wolf would do or tony morrison would do but i do think that like you know when people think about writers of very long sentences they often do think of like henry james who of course is very important to me but i do feel that like writers like borges like bologna like cisneros like like gail jones for example like you know and petri these writers who are i mean zora neale hurston like the more vernacular writers i.e like not white male writers like the, the way that they use sentences vibrant is such a great word for it because they contain often like whole lives and they kind of break the quote-unquote rules both grammatically and as you know in terms of like what you can put in a sentence um i mean you know i think we're often taught like oh don't put the most important thing in just one sentence you've got to like build it out of a paragraph but i feel like very much for you i feel like in your stories your sentences are life or death you know it's like you you are staking the whole story Uh on what the one sentence at a time and it is like (laughs) incredible i there are no throwaway lines in a jameel coach high story and you know it's funny it's not you know it's not even something that like i think like i'm trying to do consciously but unconsciously i don't know i feel like i have this sort of um drive to 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 pack as much as i can not only into to every single story that I tell, but then, you know, to, and as you mentioned, like into every single sentence that I write, like, if, you know, uh, th- there's something about, especially a long sentence where, where, you know, I'll start it and, and, and I'll have no idea where it's going. And, and so like, it can oftentimes lead me to really surprising places. And so, um, you know, I don't know, I think sometimes I have that similar sort of experience where, or when I put a, a, a comma at the end of a phrase, I like I have no idea where it's going. I don't know if the character's <laughs> going to be dead by the end of the sentence. So, um, yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they are dead. Like, 
sometimes sometimes their ghost is telling the story. Like it's very you just never know. I feel like your sentences cross dimensions sometimes. Um, but I guess so. Then speaking of the subject matter of these stories, I mean, I feel like you know this book was the first. I mean, other than having read Ninety Nine Nights in Logar, that that I'd read so many stories that were so not so much like just about people in the Afghani diaspora, but like a book told from so deeply inside of that diaspora in such an idiosyncratic way. I mean, you've got like the incredibly devout, you know, sort of adults. You've got the sort of dweeby kids. You've got this like incredibly sort of like 90s American kid sort of meets the, you know, the sort of strictures of faith and what that looks like in a contemporary way. It's such an incredible cross-section of life. And so I'd love to hear you just talk a little bit about how you came to these stories and what it means to be telling these stories in this incredible, like, it must be said, incredibly idiosyncratic, like Metal Gear Solid, like, amazing. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's just, um, like, these are the stories and these are the people that I that I grew up with, right? And so these are, like, the things that, you know, when I'm when I'm putting the the not the pens to the paper, but I guess my fingers to the keypad, like the, you know, these are the stories that that first come to me. And so, you know, I remember very what, early on when I was when I was just beginning to write seriously, I was telling I was telling all these stories. I was writing these stories, and at the time, I was reading way too much like Cormac McCarthy and and, <laughs> William and and Hemingway. And so I was writing these stories about like like you know like 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 white guys on rivers searching for their like the having like an existential crisis on on a boat or something like that and 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 I was writing I was trying to write I was trying to copy like Cormac McCarthy's voice and it was just it was so bad it was such terrible writing and and it wasn't until like I got I got to this place where I became more comfortable with writing in this very you know idiosyncratic or this 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 tone of voice this this style that felt um, that felt much more that felt you know I don't know I don't know if true is exactly the word because that's just you know that's a big word but um, but it just felt closer to the voice to the voices and to the stories that that I had grown up hearing that I had grown up telling you know um, I, I came from a household that's that was very much oriented in in in, in oral storytelling and so. When when I'm when I write a story and if it feels like that story is being told orally, like it's being told out loud, like to me that's like that's one of like the greatest accomplishments I can do when I when I'm really capturing a voice that feels like um, there's a breath to it, like like it's harried, like like the 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 narrator has to tell the story or they're gonna they're gonna die on the spot or something like that. Like to me that's. You know, that's what I'm always trying to write toward when I'm when I'm when I'm cultivating my my sentences or when I'm crafting my stories. And so, um, yeah, yeah, it's 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 taken it's taken a little while to come to this place, but um, but now now I'm in a position where where just I feel I feel comfortable, you know, experimenting with with those sorts of voices and those sorts of sounds. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think oftentimes. And I know I have felt this um, with respect to my own community, whatever that word means. Yeah. You know, there there is this sort of initial impulse to be very not pious, but very protective. Yeah. And so you so you don't want to get too much of like your stuff on it. You want it to be mm-hmm. very 
quote unquote authentic, but I do feel yeah. that the best writing comes from just like letting a little bit of your own stuff get on, get into those Absolutely. things that mean yeah. so much to you. And so then yeah. it's not, you're not sort of writing in these received notions or received ideas about it. You're like writing from this like really kind of like weird kid, like what, what does the weird kid who grew up in that world yeah. see, you know? Totally, you know, and I think like in the beginning I was trying to be, I was trying to be like so uh, like so wise with my writing because that's mm. what I was reading. It was like these super philosophical old white guy writers. And so when I went in, I was like, I got to sound really smart and, and philosophical when I'm writing my stories. And I, I read this quote by um, by by Barry Hanna, whose whose sentences have also been super influential. And, you know, he said something about like, um, like that a mistake that many young writers make is that they go into their stories trying to be too wise and that he says that, you know, when, when I'm entering a story, I just I try to enter it like a mad fool, just sort of wandering about trying to figure out what happens next. And I think like when I when I got more comfortable with that idea of just like entering a story and just um, being being comfortable with the idea of like not knowing what going to happen next being comfortable with the idea of like just messing around with the sentences experimenting with the sentences sort of being that that sort of mad fool in my story that's when that's when the stories like actually really took off yeah i mean it's that don quixote thing right like yeah. letting the letting the mad fool roam around and sort of uh -huh. You know, like that's what makes that book so incredible is that like Cervantes isn't trying to be wise or pontificate. He's like letting <laughs> Don Quixote be awful <laughs> at, yeah. at what he wants to do. Um, but I mean, that being said, though, I mean, there is this incredible verve and humor and like wit on display. But there is also just like a great deal of. It's not that the characters are wise, that there are sort of wise men, uh, although I feel like wise men come to bad ends in your stories. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but I feel like where the wisdom does come in is in how tender you let these characters be to each other. The, the fact that family, I mean, I feel like that is sort of the one constant in all of your stories. Even the families where it's kind of messed up and brutal i do feel that the the families in your stories are so seamed together with love and it's a complicated love for all the reasons of like colonialism and apartheid and the horrors of america um it's a complicated love but i feel such wisdom in the way that you handle family dynamics um and so i'd love to hear you just talk a little bit about family as like a dramatic crucible like a like a little laboratory for you to to sort of run these experiments in yeah absolutely i mean you know i, I come from a big family right mm -hmm. so like you know, four four little brothers and sisters and then in my household it was my mother my father my grandmother and then we had um we had an aunt living with us as well so and then and then beyond that there was you know we had aunts and cousins in in, in the bay area and then of course, in Afghanistan, like I just, you know, I've got this huge family. And so a lot of my life just from, a, you know, from, from the get go is just it's been it's all been all about family and centering family. And um, and, you know, I got to this place where um, I remember I was taking a, a course with um, with Ian Lee at UC Davis, who, you know, just um, she's a she's a she's a huge she's been a huge supporter from the very beginning. 
and um, someone that like I really I owe a lot of my writing. You know what what I've been able to accomplish with my writing is because of things that Ian Lee has, has taught me. And and one of the things that one of the rules that she gave us very early on is she said you know all all, all short fiction has to be centered upon um, character relationship. And that's not something that I did initially. I think when I, mm. you know, when I sort of found my voice, um, I got into this style of writing where it was very, um, it was very action oriented. Like I was always trying to figure out what's the next conflict, what's the next thing, what's the next sort of trouble I can get my characters into, and then, and then, you know, uh, I, I would write like a romper or mm. this very, this very adventurous tale, right? Um, but, but with less emphasis upon. Um, like sort of these, 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 these like deeper details about the characters and, and how they think about one another and how they understand one another and how, how, how they love one another and all those complicated ways that you mentioned. And so, um, you know, when I heard that from Ian, that that's, that sort of stuck with me for the longest time. And so now when I'm entering a story and, and, I'm, and I'm figuring out the voice and I'm figuring out the plot and I'm figuring out all the you know, perspective, all these things that we do as writers, um, the other thing that I'm searching for all the time, like, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a bad, bad, I don't know why this metaphor, but like a, like a heat sinking missile or something is like, um, is, is, are these, are these relationships? Like what mm. are, like, how do these characters know and love and understand one another? And how is that getting complicated by, by the circumstances of their life, by their past, by the things they can't let go of, by, by whatever traumas they've experienced. And, um, and then, and then I try to make that. The crux of the story as much as I can, and so um, within the the dynamic of a family, especially, it's very useful for me as a writer because families can get so messy, and uh, you know mm -hmm. there's there's all these different things, all these different dramas and secrets and gossip and all these things going on at once. That like when I throw it onto a page, it it like you know it can create magic. Yeah, I do feel that that's one of the ways that we are uh, very similar, but very similar in life, but very dissimilar in our writing. I also come yeah. from like, you know, like a huge Southern family. Yeah. And yet, and yet I'm like trying to build my way up to like letting my character have like two parents <laughs> and then like a sibling. I'm like slowly letting my characters <laughs> have and families. I, I love that about your stories too you know like that's what, so much of what i admire about your work is there's things that like i could never imagine doing you have you have this one passage in one of your stories where your character is just buying apples and the sentences are so beautifully written that i could have read these you know and for me like my my characters are always they're 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 turning into monkeys they're getting into revolutions they're doing all these things your characters buying apples and i'm riveted i'm captivated by that and so you know it's just one of those things i think when when uh, you know when i read it when i read a story like that like it's even as though it's so different from what i do it's it's also very inspirational mm. oh jamil that means the world to me um but i guess like speaking of characters turning into monkeys like that is like not a thing that you just like threw out there as an example like that is a literal thing that happens in this book <laughs> <Okay. Yeah. laughs> um i'm curious about your use of I guess like what white people would call like the fantastical. Um, but like, I'm so like, I mean, it's like a very particular kind of fantastical. Like it's a kind of mystical, pseudo spiritual, like it's a very kind of, like it's not just talking animals. Like it is like, it's coming from like a very particular place, the sort of mysticism of your work. And I mean, and you know, it's sort of like, 
it's a dangerous area to venture into because there are all of these like horrible Western ideas about the quote unquote mysticism of the Orient. Uh, Um, And so I'm curious, and and I always feel like you're kind of like, like tongue in cheek, like playing with like their dumb idea of like what the mysticism of the (laughs) Orient is. Um, And so I'm curious about your use of the mystical, the mythical, the fantastical, and whether or not you really are sometimes kind of making fun of our dumb ideas about. Uh, Eastern times, mysticism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would. Yeah, at times, you know, I I think I try to. I you know, when I go into a story, I I try to be as playful as possible. You mm-hmm. know, so when I'm going into the story and I'm thinking about, you know, if there's if there's gonna be like you know magic involved or, or mysticism or or, or or the fantastic, right? Um, I wanna I wanna start I wanna play around with that idea as well, right? And so. You know, with that with that story where, um, where where a character turns into a monkey, right? Like that was a story that I had like a lot of hesitancy about because it, it, it had sort of become a trope by then. You know, as you mentioned, like it sort of become this sort of um, uh, Orientalist um, sort of like immigrant lit trope where you the character just turns into an animal, right? And um, but with that story, you know, that that story was rooted in this in the story my my grandmother used to tell me when I was very little. And, um, and, you know, she would tell us that if we crossed the prayer rug uh, while someone was praying on it, that we would turn into a monkey. And it's something that I very much believed in when I was a child. And, you know, you know and as, as a practicing Muslim, it's, it's funny because, you know, I, I, I believe in all sorts, I believe in God and, and angels and, and jinn and all these things that, like, on a certain level, they, they are fantastical but it's also it's, it's it's also just very natural to me. And I remember, you know, I was writing 99 Nights in Logad, and the first time someone described it as mythological, I was very I was very confused by that. And and she was like, well, but there's there's angels and there's all these other things. And I was like, oh, but but that's just that's just regular stuff, you know. And so um so so part of it it's just it's it's coming like very naturally out of the you know the storytelling tradition that that I sort of grew up within. Um, but at the same time, I'm also like, I, I do try to play around with this. So when I'm writing the story about a character turning into a monkey, the first thing I'm, I'm trying to figure out is like, for which character would that be the worst thing on earth? And so <laughs> I end up landing on like a PhD student who like needs to get all this work done and has all these, you know, this dissertation to work on. And he's got these courses and he's being totally exploited and abused by his thesis advisor and all these sort of things. He has no time in the, at all to turn into a monkey. And so, and so that's the, that's the character I'm going to turn into a monkey. And then, and then I'm going to figure out how that sort of that process, that magic, whatever, that's sort of how, how he's going to deal with that. And then, um, and then, you know, of course that, that turns into, that turns into an adventure, of its own, and so I'm constantly like I'm, I'm. I think I'm trying to use these sorts of these tropes or these these fantastic boys to, to to get at like different different ideas surrounding, uh, you know, Orientalism or or uh, um, or, or different you know sort of conceptions or representations of of Afghans or or Afghanistan and and and, and try to flip those things on their head. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to do a quick reminder that we're ha- going to have a Q&A in about 10-ish minutes. So send those questions to the chat. Um, I felt like a radio host just now. 
Um, Very professional. <laughs> thank you. Um, you know, it's so interesting. I mean, I feel like that is another way in which, like, we we intersect quite deeply in that, like, so I, I mean, I am an atheist, but before that, I grew up in a very Baptist family in the rural South, and, like, you know, we also believed in angels and demons, and, like, when there was, like, a storm outside, we all had to, like, get inside and turn off all the electricity because God was working his, his ways. Um, and so like, I grew up in like this, like deeply sort of almost superstitious folk religion kind of, kind of way. And then I like go to the Midwest where everyone's like, kind of not like that at all. And, you know, I'll be like, Oh, well, you know, like, like there's a ghost and they'd be like, how, how can you believe in ghosts? You're an atheist. You are literally a scientist. And I'm like, well, like, yeah, I don't believe in God. Not really, but like ghosts are real. (laughs) The sort of, um, the sort of, sort of para, I mean, I, I feel that our reality, I think, uh, our, our mutual friend Pam Zhang, she used to say that like brown people's reality yeah. is kind of at an oblique to white people's reality, <laughs> where like all the sort of stuff that they think is like mystical and magical, we're just kind of like that's that's what my grandma told me. I believe her. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> I yeah. love that so much. <laughs> yeah, Pam is Pam is so wise about so many things. Um, I mean, but. So getting back to the reversion of Dully, that story in which he is transformed into a monkey, that story, you know, just now you were talking about it, and it's like, yeah, that story has so much going on. <laughs> like, like, there's the kind of, like, revolutionary aspect to it in which he's, like, kind of a revolutionary, he's, like, pretending to be a revolutionary to get a girl. Isn't that right? Like, am I? But then he, like, kind of does become an actual <laughs> Revolutionary when he's turned into a monkey. I I feel that so many of your stories they pivot around this idea of like what it means to be like a righteous member of the Afghani diaspora and like what that really means and like what it means to be you know righteous and upright and doing your duty and like this pressure to affect a certain kind of leftist politic and how that plays out but of course like so many of your characters are just like interested in playing video games and getting girls totally. um and so i'm curious about that aspect to the writing as well the, the sort of mining the different aspects to um afghani life like for tensions to tease apart in your fiction well you know it's part of it is like I, uh, something that i find Something that I think is that, that I've experienced and that I've seen within the, you know, the, the, the Afghan American community in particular, I think is it's sort of this um, moral, moral weight or this moral obligation that, that, many, that many of us in the, in the diaspora especially feel like we have to figure out a way to go back and save the country, right? And, um, and oftentimes, you know, as uh, there, and there's a, like a million examples that I could give you from the, the past 20 years during the occupation when all these, um, you know, uh, uh, Western raised Afghans went back and just totally fucked up the country. Um, <laughs> oh, no. and, and so that, but you know, and a lot, but a lot of times, mm-hmm. like sometimes it's, it's great exploitative and they went over there just to make money and like, get, but like sometimes, and this is, these are the characters that I'm most interested in. It, it starts from like a place of like real idealism. Like they really want to go back and they really want to help out. And then once they get there, however, like the, I think it dawns on my, a lot of characters that, that the situation is much larger and complex and 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 multifaceted than they had anticipated. And I think this this is something that I like you know this experience that I went through when I you know when I used to go back 
um, uh, to Afghanistan, and it, it's sort of this realization that I came to. And but I think this happens to um, to a lot of Afghans in the diaspora as well. And you know, so I got there, there's one character, uh, Dali, of course, who, who goes back and and uh, and out of out of idealism starts this whole revolution, and then ends up making a mess of things with that. But then I also have this character. Um, it's it, 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 like it's a doctor couple, and they're going back, and they want to, and they want to help people with their with their medical degree, and then and then that sort of uh, you know sort of collapses in on them in in, in their own way, right? Mm. And so you know I think it's it's one of those questions, it's one of those things that that I'm often trying to explore in my in my stories is this is this um, is this gap in understanding between between what 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 a you know what what someone thinks. A, you know, a nation is, or a place is, or even a city is, or or what their even like what their family is, and then and then what that thing actually ends up becoming, and 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 the different mm-hmm. things you have to do to sort of um, leap into that goal for that gap. And so, um, yeah, you know, I think that's that, that's a really astute observation because because it's something that's I would say it's something that's that's very personal to, to like my understanding. Or my relationship to Afghanistan, and so that's why I'm often exploring it in my characters as well. Yeah, I mean, I, it's again, it's one of the things I really love about your work because it reminds me of so much of my own, um, my own sort of working through my own positionality with respect to the South and like what that means and like what that oh, looks yeah. like for you know even my family who is still there. Um, and it's that thing where you you sort of like learn just enough Marxism to be like really ineffectual. Um, and the sort of precariousness of your own positionality. Oh no, am oh, I frozen? Yes. I, um, you know, you're... Okay, we're back, we're back. But yeah, I mean... working for me. Okay, you're back. I'm back, you're back, we're all back. But yeah, I mean, I was just saying that like, yeah, I mean, I feel like what you illuminate so beautifully is like, how characters can be sort of like occluded by their own positionality where they're just like not even aware of the subtle ways that they're kind of self-exoticizing their home. Like it's, it's not fun. And that sort of gulf when you realize how far away from where you thought you were that you really are, I mean, it's really quite breathtaking. And I love that you mine it for such comedy. <laughs> You know, because it, it can lead to some really, really uh, comic and maybe sometimes like darkly comic, but um, but disastrous situations. I think when I, when I'm writing a I'm writing a story, I'm often looking for disaster. Mm. I mean, there's nothing quite as like deflating as like a like a sort of grandma. You're like there with your suitcase trying to figure out how to do everything because you're there to fix everything. You're the great repairer, and then there's like a old woman who's like, "If you don't get out of my way, I have th- yeah. I have things to do." <laughs> Right. Yeah, I love it. The number of times it has happened to me, so many. I'm like, wow. I thought I was the one who was wise, and in fact, I'm still a child. Oh no. Um, we have a couple questions in the chat, but I'm going to leave it to to Peter to curate them. Amazing! It worked. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so there is some great stuff here. Let me see if I can. Um scroll through and try to do this in chronological order. So Matt asks, what advice would you have for a South Asian Middle Eastern writer who is afraid of writing honestly about culture and religion? 
Um, you know, I think, I mean, first of all, I would say like, um, like, like starting off with, with that sort of, that's sort of a concern. Um, it, it, for for me at least, I think that's that's a good place to start. Like the the fact that 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 you're coming into that position where where you're thinking about that or you're thinking about um, you know the 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 sort of the the, the troublesome issues that can arise from um, you know from uh, from writing about culture or or religion or or a particular location, especially you know if that's a location or um, or culture that's been you know, um, routinely and for, for decades now uh, been, been demonized in, in the United States. You know, if you're, uh, if you're writing from within the United States about, um, you know, culture, if that, if that culture for, or that religion, for example, is, um, you know, Islam, like that can be, that can be a, a sticky situation. And um, the, the, the only thing I would then say about that is to, um, it, I think it's a good place to start as a concern but then to not, um, but then to not allow that concern or, or or those anxieties to get in the way of the writing itself, right? Um, write the stories uh, that you need to write. Write them as as you see fit. Write them as you know um, with a uh, with a with a particular mindset for, um, for 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 what you're seeing in that in that sort of a, in that community or whatever else it is. Um, uh, but then, but then, but then also, you know, keep in uh, keep in mind the fact that um, at least for me, when I'm coming in and I'm when I'm writing a story about the Afghan community, or when I'm writing a story about Afghanistan, or I'm writing a story that's um, that's dealing with Islam, I'm also making sure that at the same time that I, I feel like I have a certain responsibility to make sure that I'm doing that in 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 a complex way, in in a multifaceted way. In a, in a tender and in a sensitive way, and that I'm not, you know, crushing Islam and making it this this single level thing. I'm not crushing Afghanistan and making it this single level thing, this thing that needs to be saved or this thing that needs to, um, you know, be destroyed or this thing that's, you know, um, a, a paradise or something like that, right? Um, when I'm going into a story, when I'm thinking uh, through a story, I'm always thinking about ways that, that I can complicate or that I can add nuance or that I can then at tenderness or beauty and and if you're going at it with that sort of an approach i think um i, th I think ultimately it can lead to a more a more beneficial space than than in other realms so we have a question from sandy uh it's really inspiring to hear from you jamil how did you come with to your voice and there's a question for both of you when writing your first works did you have self-doubt and how did you push through it when it was just you and the work? <laughs> yeah, a lot of self-doubt. Um, I think that, that, that comes through, that comes with the territory. Um, when, when it comes to the question of the voice, for the voice, it was, um, it was a lot of reading, to be honest. You know, it was a lot of um, trying to, 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 to broaden the scope of what I was reading to, to read writers that were really like pushing the boundaries of what of what a sentence could accomplish or or, or what a, a voice could do in a story, you know. So it was it was a lot of Marquez, it was a lot of um, it was a lot of Sandra Cisneros, it was a lot of Borges, it was a lot of um, Toni Morrison. Um, the, these these really like sort of foundational, very experimental, very. I mean, I don't know if experimental, but at least these writers that were pushing the boundaries of what 
of what a sentence or a voice could accomplish. And so um, that often helped me. And then, and then, you know, it was this, this is one of the things that I, that I tell my students as well. It's going to sound a little bit cheesy, but one of the things I tell them is like, um, one of the most important things that I did in order to figure out the, the voices I wanted to write in my stories in was to sort of, was to stop talking so much and to stop writing so much and to, to sit back and listen more often. And I think that when I came to this position where, where I became a, a much better listener for stories as well. And so when I'm, you know, for example, like the enough is it's a story that's, um, I would say that's very much rooted in, in the voice of my grandmother. And I, I think that's a story that like, you know, five, 10 years ago, I, I wouldn't have been capable of writing just because I wouldn't have been um, attuned enough to her voice, um, to, to the particular way that, that she used to tell stories, God rest her soul. And, um, and so, so yeah, yeah, I would say reading a lot and, and, and figuring out how to, how to listen to a student. Yeah, yeah. I mean, also, so much self-doubt, so much, all of it, all the time. Um, I think, I mean, in some ways, I feel like I had less self-doubt with real life than I have with this novel I just turned in. There's so much more self-doubt for my third book than my first. Um, But, you know, the sort of solution, the remedy to self-doubt is kind of the same, regardless of you know, book one or book 100, which is that it's you and the work and you're ultimately writing for yourself. Hopefully you're writing a book that you would want to read and, and you're writing things that feel urgent to you and you're writing the, you're sort of seeking answers to questions that keep you up at night. And so when I have self-doubt, I just remind myself, like, who is this book for? This book is for me. You know, does this book feel urgent when I sit down to write it, yes, then keep writing. Um, and and that will get you through a lot of self-doubt is just to remind yourself why you're doing the work. And that hope, hopefully one part of that answer is that you're writing a book that you feel should be in the world. And that, I think, is sufficient. Like, it is sufficient because no book needs to exist. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. the world is not on fire. You know what I mean? Like, and so what is the sort of urgency to the book? Well, the urgency is the urgency that you desperately want to read that book and you need it to exist. And so that I think is sufficient. And so whenever I'm sort of lost in the doldrums, I just come back to that. Like this book feels urgent to me and that is the only reason I need to pursue it. And you know, and this thing is like a doubt. It's, it's such a, it's such a natural, I think, process of, of writing as well. And it's something that I think actually, that you know, if you go into a story with with a lot of doubt, it's something that I think can be actually cultivated um, for the benefit of a story mm. as well. The worst writing I think I've ever read is writers that are super confident in themselves, <laughs> especially like like when when I'm reading like white guys writing about Afghanistan and they're going in super confident and they're just like, "Let me tell you about this place that I've never been or that I visited a couple of times and I don't know anything." And, and here's this, and it's the worst book in the world. And so I think, you know, when you're, if you're going into a story with, with doubt and with questions and with the understanding that you don't really know anything about anything, like that can actually be a really effective tool for, for writing a book that's, that's more about questions, that's more about exploration mm-hmm. than it is about telling the reader, this is what a thing is like. It's like, you know, it, it becomes it, it becomes an explore it becomes an explorative process. Yeah, totally. The humility of the simple inquiry. 
Yeah, totally. That's yeah, Just, that's exactly it. Yeah. So we have a. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to get around to all these questions. There's some great stuff happening here in the chat. Leo asks, uh, this is a question for both. I was struck by the fact that much of both of your fiction is set in places where, as far as I know, you have lived in real life. How does this affect how you approach writing, setting, and place in a narrative? How do you think about writing, setting, in connection with your own experience and or in connection with the characters and plot in a narrative? Uh, I don't know. Um, Brandon, do you want to take that? Uh, sure. I mean, uh, yeah. So when I wrote my first novel, Real Life, I, I thought, okay, I am not good at writing settings so i'm not gonna name this place and nobody is gonna know like i'm so bad at this and every single person who i encountered from wisconsin who read that book was like i know exactly where that is and okay. so uh, i i i thought that like if if you don't name the streets if you don't have the city down cold then you don't need to write it because then blah 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 but what i found is that honestly it's I think the best way to approaching setting is just kind of like knowing enough about a place to be kind of, to be able to forget about it, you know, to not feel so oppressed by it. Um, and to sort of let the setting do the work, be mindful of the place, be mindful of the weather, of the people, of the mores, of the customs, like the Midwest, like Iowa is so different from Wisconsin and Wisconsin is so different from New York city and New York city is so different from the South. And so, I, I kind of love writing about the Midwest because I'm not from there. I've just kind of lived there for about a decade, but I'm not from there. And so I have like an outsider's view on it. And so I'm able to kind of write about it like I would write about an attractive stranger across the room where you know just enough to imagine an inner life without feeling too bogged down by the facts. Um, and what has been harder for me is like writing about the South. So I'm working on a novel that's set in the South and that is very scary because I know the South incredibly well. I know where all the streets are, all the cities. And so I have, you know, like when you're so close to it, you're like, oh, if I mess up the exact scale of this diorama, the whole novel is ruined, you know? Like there, there's a way that being too close to a place, I think, can sometimes impair your ability to write about it, or at least mine. And so I feel like the ideal scenario for me is like writing about a place that I am not from and that I kind of know a little bit. That is perfection. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny because for, for the longest time, you know, when I was growing up in Sacramento, I, I didn't write about Sacramento at all. Like, I, you know, I, I, I'd done these, these childhood trips to Logada, Afghanistan. And so when I began writing, and so much of my stories early on from a very young age, they were all set in Logada, the, the stories that my parents and grandparents used to tell me. So Logada was just there from, from the very beginning as sort of this, this location. It's, it's where all our stories began. And so when I first started writing, I, I wrote almost exclusively about Logat. I, I, oh, wow. I very rarely, yeah, I very rarely wrote about Sacramento at all. Um, that was until I, I left Sacramento for the first time when I went to Iowa. And, uh, and I spent, you know, it's two years in Iowa. And, uh, and literally, as soon as I got to, um, uh, to Iowa during my first workshop, that's when I wrote my first story about Sacramento because uh, like, I, I had begun to miss it. Like I needed that. 
I, I, you know, I think it's a little bit similar to what, what Brandon is saying. Like I needed that sense of distance from this place that I had, that I had been too close to my entire life. Right. It's mm. like I, when I finally left Sacramento, I was in Iowa. All I could think about was Sacramento and in, and in, and in thinking about it so much and then longing for it, like it just, it came about in my stories and all of a sudden I was like, Oh, you know, let me, let me, let me talk about like, you know, these things, these, these silly situations that we got in at the dorm in Davis or, or these particular streets we used to ride our bikes on and this place I used to, you know, we used to get in fights and, and that's where we used to play basketball and, and all these different things. And all of a sudden these locations, they became very precious to me. And, um, and, and then, and then it was through that, that sense of, of distance and, um, and the, uh, that, 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 like I needed that to, to actually begin writing about that particular. Yeah. It became a location in the mind and the imagination. It became a yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Andre Andre Alciman talks about that in um, his essay collection, False Papers. The sort of that moment when you're kind of in exile, and so the place becomes a city of memory in a way, like a kind of shadow city as well. Um, oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's oh, so true like that, that once it's like once it's in the mind, you're like, oh, I can write about this. I have. Yeah. It's not real. It's in the imagination. <laughs> so I'm going to try to combine two or three questions. <laughs> okay. One last question. Um, so um, Jessica asks, how do you refill your creative well? Um, Danica Morale asks, what's your process like? How many drafts per story? Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then there's another question about plot. So I guess process, process. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know, for me, especially with the short story collection, like each story, it was, it was its own process in a lot of ways. So what I do like on a day-to-day -day basis is like I'm, I'm constantly on the hunt for stories. So, you know, uh, what, I, what, I, what I would like to do, my, my main objective is, you know, and this is something that I was taught very early on is, you know, figure out a particular character that I'm fascinated in and then revolve the story around the character. Um, but that doesn't always happen. You know, the, the playing, playing Metal Gear Solid, that story came out of this like this, this joke or this um, like mind game that I was that I sort of like brought up to my brothers. Like, you know, what would have happened if we could if we could leave this section of the game and go visit our old village? And then and then the haunting of Haji Hotuk, like that literally came from an Onion article that I read. Right. And so, you know, it's this process of like always looking for inspiration. And then, but once you sort of get the idea for a story or, or the impetus for a story, um, after that, like it's, uh, for me, it's very quickly, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the characters and then I'm trying to figure out the relationships between the characters um, so that so that I can, so that I can sort of latch on to like, like the crux or, or the heart of the story. Mm -hmm. And then, and then from there, everything revolves around that. And so, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, but I'd love to hear from Jamil. Ooh, um, I mean, for as you know, Jamil, I don't really write standalone stories. I'm always like writing these like cons these horrible constellations of stories. And so in some ways, I'm like kind of like, you know, it's like a repertory theater in a way in, in that like I, I a character shows up and then that character has people in their life and very often I just like repurpose those people and I write several stories and so for me kind of like you I'm like 
I have the character set and what I'm looking for is like, what's an interesting situation for them to get into? Normally it's like a terrible dinner party or like a potluck or something or, or buying apples. Um, and, and so for me, I'm like using those characters to sort of explore different sets of questions and different scenarios. And so I have the characters already and then I'm just like writing stories and I'll write a story and then I'll write a second story and sometimes a third story. Um, Once I, I tend to not start writing any story until I have a sense of like what the five stories that will follow it will be, or like the sense that there are five more stories in the corpus that I can sort of slowly sort of tease out and draw out. Um, and so for me, it's just like a process of like waiting, waiting, waiting. And then once I feel like I got that, that, that first flash of a scenario, then it's like execute time to just like go in there. And then I'm just like going, I am like the most boring writer in the world where I'll just like sit down and start drafting and I will draft until there are no more stories. <laughs> like I, will, I will just like cancel all my plans. I'm like, it's drafting week. We're drafting and writing and writing. And then it's a lot of, you know, revision, painstaking, rewriting, printing, marking, retyping, printing, marking, retyping. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the clock is ticking away and we're near the end now. I really offer you both much respect. And Jan Jamil Kochai, congratulations. Brandon Taylor, thank you for doing the honors. It was a pleasure to have both of you grace our virtual halls. Also want to thank the audience for joining us tonight. Some great, great interaction in the chat. Um, we feel the love. I posted links with which you may purchase copies from both authors. Just to say thank you so much to everyone who, who showed up to you know uh, be a part of this event. Um, thank you to City Lights for hosting us, uh, you especially, Peter. And then, um, and then uh, of course, Brandon, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's always a pleasure to chat. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.